today is the 13th Sunday of Pentecost. We are just about halfway through the Pentecost season. This is a season of witness, a time when God's grace is available to anyone who hears the gospel. The reality is that this season is not open-ended. There is an appointed time when Jesus will return. There is an appointed time when he will judge all the earth. There is a limited amount of time for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For you and for me, there is a limited amount of time for us to accomplish the mission that he has given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone and to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. We need to heed the words of Jesus. We must do the work of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So may you and I be faithful to the mission during this season of witness. In our study of the book of Acts, we come today to Acts chapter 15. So take your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 15, but also open them to Galatians chapter 2. Let's look at a few verses here in Acts chapter 15, and then we'll get into our study and look at what is happening as we read these verses. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now some of the Pharisees who belonged to the party, some of the believers rather, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Let's focus on that last statement that Peter made. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus we are saved, just as they are. Now, I want you to keep your Bibles also open to Galatians chapter 2 because we're going to reference that as we go through. 
We are entitling this study, By Grace, Period. By Grace, Period. Let's look at what is happening. As we come to Acts chapter 15, this is a pivotal moment. We find that there is a controversy that has developed, and it has the potential to divide and derail the work of the mission. A council is convening at Jerusalem, and that council will decide the foundation and content of the gospel message and its further proclamation. We will also see, as we continue from this point of Acts chapter 15, that there is a shift of focus. The focus will shift from the church at Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. We'll also see that there is a shift of personality from the Apostle Peter to the Apostle Paul. In fact, this will be the last time that we hear from the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul is the one who will loom prominently from here on, along with the mission to the Gentiles that is originating and being mothered by the church at Antioch. As we have mentioned in previous weeks, we will continue to see from this point on a development of the paradigm that's been initiated by the Holy Spirit for the execution of the mission. That paradigm is systematic evangelism in urban centers and the planting of new churches in those localities and the effective involvement of those churches in the mission. Remember we said last week that much of what we had seen previously in the book of Acts had revolved around individuals and specific events that have been initiated by the Holy Spirit. But now we begin to see through the ministry of Barnabas and Paul as they went out from the church of Antioch that the Holy Spirit is working through the people of God to evangelize specific areas and then to plant new churches. In those new churches, believers will be nurtured. They will be taught to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And they will be able to continue evangelizing their locality and winning that area to Jesus Christ. We are going to see that take place in some very powerful ways as we continue through the book of Acts. We also find at this point the writing of the first letters that will be contained in the final canon of New Testament Scripture. So Acts chapter 15 is a very pivotal moment in the work and the ministry of the church. Now let's look at a sequence of events that is taking place here. And at this point, we need to weave some of the things that we are looking at in Acts chapter 15 with some of the things that we read about in Galatians chapter 2 and some of the things that have already taken place that are recorded for us at the end of chapter 14. But when we interface them all together, this is how the sequence of events develop. It's A.D. 47, and Peter comes to Antioch. Remember, Peter was traveling throughout Samaria, and he came on up to Joppa, and then Caesarea, and the Lord used him there. He went back to Jerusalem and gave his report, and Peter is a traveling apostle. 
And so he came to Antioch and he enjoyed table fellowship with all. Now that term table fellowship is significant, especially for a Jew, because to sit down at a table and have fellowship with someone is to have fellowship before God. It's not merely sitting with an individual. It is sitting before God. And that's why the Jews were so particular in washing their plates, washing their hands, making everything clean. Because once again, they were not just sitting with other people. They were sitting in the presence of God. Now, Peter came down to Antioch. And in Antioch, there is a mixed group of people. Some are Jews and some are Gentiles. Some have a civilized background. Some have a very uncultured upbringing. Peter sits down and he eats with them all. He enjoys fellowship with every one of them. Now, it's important to note that this is the extended fulfillment of the vision that he received from the Lord while he was in Joppa. You remember the vision. Three times a sheep came down from heaven, and it was filled with all sorts of animals, including many animals that Jewish law determined to be unclean. And Peter heard a voice saying, eat. And Peter responded, knowing that the voice was the voice of the Lord, no, I have never eaten anything that is unclean. And that vision was repeated twice over. Now, the first part of it was fulfilled when he went to Cornelius's house. And as a result of that vision, he knew that he should not call anyone unclean, even though Jewish law said that he should not be in a Gentile's house. But there was more to that vision. It was sitting down and eating. It was having table fellowship. And now the final part of that vision was being fulfilled. Peter is in Antioch. He's having table fellowship with the Gentiles. As we read in Acts chapter 15, believers from the party of the Pharisees came from Judea to Antioch. And we read in Galatians chapter 2 that they represented themselves as from James. Now, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. They both shared the same mother, Mary. The Lord Jesus made a personal appearance to him after his resurrection. This James is a very strict Jew. He lives according to the law. And he has also risen to become the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. After Peter speaks here at this council, and then Paul and Barnabas speak, James will rise with a word of wisdom and understanding of Scripture being fulfilled and will offer a solution to this crisis that is threatening to divide the church in half. But these Pharisee believers, almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? And we know of the Pharisees and how they opposed Jesus. But these were very law-abiding believers. They represented themselves as coming from James. And they came to the church in Antioch. And they insisted that the Gentiles, in order to be saved, 
had to be circumcised according to Jewish law. It's now AD 48. Paul and Barnabas arrive back in Antioch. And they give their report of how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We read in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter and then Barnabas succumbed to the pressure of the Judaizers. These people who said that you needed to live separately, you needed to live according to Jewish law. And they drew back from fellowship with the Gentiles. Now, this was a very significant moment. In them drawing back, they were saying, we can't have fellowship with you because you are unclean. And so Paul publicly confronted Peter, declaring that, He was being a hypocrite and misrepresenting the gospel of grace. That there were no requirements to be attached to the gospel of grace. That Jesus Christ had made the two one. That we did not act out of a racial, an ethnic, or a religious bias towards others. But we accepted them wholeheartedly. And we lived in fellowship with them on one basis, the gracious work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter was set straight by Paul. And as we just read from Acts chapter 15, he will stand for the gospel of grace at the council in Jerusalem. Barnabas was corrected. He came back over to Paul's side. And together we read there in Acts chapter 15 that they contended with the Judaizers. Now the dispute was so intense, the debate was so strong, that the church at Antioch recognized that there was only one way to resolve it, and that was to send a delegation to Jerusalem and for them to meet with the apostles and the elders and lay this issue before them and receive a determination from what was the head church about this matter. Well, at the same time, the very same controversy has infiltrated the churches in Galatia, where Paul and Barnabas had ministered from where they had just returned. The report of what was happening came back to Paul there in Antioch. And so before traveling to Jerusalem, He wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia. It's what we call a circular letter. You read the opening to the churches in Galatia, more than one. So it would be read in one place, such as Iconium, and then it would be taken to Lystra, and then to Derbe, read throughout the churches. He recounted what happened at Antioch, and there we have the story of what happened with Peter and Barnabas, and how he confronted Peter, what he said to Peter, and how he rebuked them for frustrating and abandoning the grace of God. At the Council of Jerusalem, when the delegation arrives and everyone comes together, as we read, the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees demand that the Gentiles be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And Peter, as we have said, with renewed clarity, 
and understanding of the work of God, the intention of God, the purposes of God, he stands and he recounts how God used him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And he ends his speech by asserting, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Think with me for a moment about the significance of what is happening here. There is a division that threatens the church, its future, its message. What will be the basis of the message? Will it be that we are saved through Jesus Christ, but we must adhere to the law in order for that salvation to be valid? Or will it be that we are saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and grace alone? This issue is being put forth to the leaders. The outcome of the future of the gospel hangs in the balance with what is happening there. Well, let's think through for a few moments this controversy and understand what is taking place. Centuries earlier, back in the time of the kings and prophets such as Isaiah, God had judged his people for abandoning their covenant obligation and disregarding the law. And you remember what happened. First, the northern kingdom was overtaken by the Assyrians and the people were deported. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They lost their status as God's special set-apart people. And they lost their sovereignty as a nation that God had established. They were deported to Babylon. Well, they learned from their failure. And so keeping the law became absolute for them. The Torah, written and oral, with the commands given through Moses and the rabbinical safeguards that were developed throughout the centuries. We referred to some of those, and we referred to them in our Wednesday Bible studies as we're going through the Gospel of John. There were many, many things that were added to this oral law and the teachings of the rabbis. But at the heart of all was this effort to safeguard, to put boundaries around their lives so that they did not transgress the law and thus again experience what had happened some 600 years earlier when they lost their status and they lost their sovereignty. They believed that zealously adhering to the Torah, and the Apostle Paul claimed himself to be one of those who did just that. He was zealous for the traditions of the fathers, he wrote to the Galatians. Blameless according to the law. Zealously adhering to the Torah enabled one to be blameless before God. This was the basis of being right with God. And if you were zealous in keeping the law, then you merited God's favor and blessing and you were entitled to a place in the coming kingdom of God. 
Jesus was countering that belief when Nicodemus came to him and asked about eternal life. And Jesus said, I tell you, except you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This was the way that they thought. The way that they had come to believe was necessary if they were going to be right with God and have a place in God's kingdom. Again, looking back to what had happened centuries ago, they also had the perspective that lawbreakers endangered not only oneself, but also the nation. And this is why the high priest, as they were discussing Jesus and what to do about him in John chapter 11 and verse 50, declared that it's better that one die for the nation than that the whole nation perish. Lawbreakers were seen to bring God's judgment, not just upon themselves, but upon the nation. And they did not want to find themselves in the same place that they were all those centuries earlier. Well, as we come to Acts chapter 15, the Gentiles are now turning to God. And these are people who are notoriously immoral, indiscriminate, and injudicious. So how can they be a holy people unless they are required to adhere to the law of holiness that is given through Moses? They don't have the same background. They don't know what is right in the sight of God. They don't know how to live in a way that is blameless before God. And thus the argument that you need to be circumcised and you need to be required to keep the law of Moses, the law of holiness, so that you can be right in the sight of God. Here is the issue. It's the issue of favor. Is it merited? As the Pharisee believers were saying, or is it unmerited favor? As Peter was arguing, Again, the words of Peter to the council at Jerusalem. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Galatians there in chapter 2. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So here is this issue. Are we justified by what we do? Does what we do gain credit for us with God? Does he see our good efforts? And does that gain merit for us? Or do we stand before him with absolutely no merit whatsoever? And only have possibility of being right with him through grace, unmerited favor. Let's highlight a couple of words here. First of all, the word grace. We want to keep that at the forefront of our thinking. 
with a very simple definition, unmerited favor. Grace, unmerited favor. And the second word, justify. In its simplest definition, we defined it as just as if I had never sinned. Now, that's an amazing thought. Just as if I had never sinned. That word justified is at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is saying as he writes to the Galatians. And then the third thing to keep in mind is this statement, this phrase, faith in Christ. So grace justified and faith in Christ. One commentator wrote these words. If Jesus was condemned to death under the Torah as a transgressor and blasphemer, and if Jesus was actually so righteous in God's sight that God had already raised him from the dead, for then Jesus would be the first to enter into the resurrected life, then the Torah itself was no longer a reliable guide to what God counted as righteous, nor could it be embraced as something that would reliably make its devotees righteous before God. The problem for Paul was not that the Torah could not be obeyed, but that the Torah was not the final and ultimate revelation of God's righteousness. Jesus was that revelation. A critical effect of his encounter with the risen Lord, then, is that the center of authority and revelation shifts from the Torah to Jesus. Now, that's a very significant understanding for us to gain. Remember that Jesus contended with the Pharisees, who again and again may declare, we follow Moses. Moses is the one that we believe in and the one that we trust in. But Jesus would declare another greater than Moses is here. Remember that Saul of Tarsus, before we came to know him as Paul, the apostle, did everything he could to stamp out this new movement in his zealousness for the law, believing that that was the revelation that God had given. And the only way that one could be right with God and blameless in the sight of God did everything he could, imprisoning believers, shutting down their preaching and teaching of the gospel, harassing and intimidating. He was convinced until he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he came to understand something. Jesus was indeed resurrected, alive, and glorified. And that meant that there was someone who was more acceptable, righteous, and blameless than the Torah could ever do. No matter how zealously someone tried to obey it and follow it. And so Paul understands this divine and dramatic shift has taken place. The authority and revelation of God's will and God's plan is no longer with the revelation that came through Moses. It is now the revelation that comes through Jesus Christ. Well, this is what brought the Apostle Paul into such a sharp dispute 
with the Judaizers. And what caused him to confront Peter and declare that he was being hypocritical in withdrawing from the Gentiles, treating them as though they were unclean, as though they were not equal recipients of the grace of God, as though the work of Jesus Christ had not been fully accomplished by grace and grace alone. There's a companion passage of scripture that you and I need to study and understand in order to appreciate the significance of what is taking place in this moment and to understand the work of grace on behalf of you and on behalf of me. First of all, there's a horrible dilemma that you and I find ourselves in. In fact, the word horrible understates the dilemma that you and I are in apart from Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, and he said, As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follows them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. Quotes about the nature of man. Our sinful human nature. And then he continues... Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the whole world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. So here we find ourselves in this dilemma. No one is righteous, not even one. We are all useless in the sight of God. All of us have turned away from God. Now, those are words that we don't particularly like hearing because we believe that there is something good about us. But the Apostle Paul declared to the Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, there is no good thing in me, no, not one. Every aspect of our lives has been corrupted by sin. And this is our dilemma. You and I cannot possibly meet the scrutiny of righteousness. We cannot possibly meet the scrutiny of God's judgment when he looks to see if we have done enough good, if we have been perfect enough to be right and blameless in his sight. It is not possible, as we've already seen, for that to be accomplished by one's own effort of law-keeping. And that leaves us with just one prospect, failure, a declaration of being declared unrighteous before God and therefore under his judgments and sentenced to the maximum penalty, eternal death. So if this is impossible for us to attain and it leaves only one prospect, what can be done? And the answer to that question is, Nothing. 
There is absolutely nothing that anyone can do to be right with God, to be saved from the consequences of their own sins. Nothing, nothing, nothing. After having driven home that point, then the Apostle Paul presents the only solution. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. This is the only solution. You and I could not provide in some way a righteousness that would give us credibility with God. A blamelessness that we could present in his sight that would meet the standard of who he is. We have all sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And so God acted on our behalf. Let's look at what takes place here. First of all, the Apostle Paul declares that all have sinned and fall irremediably short of the glory of God. There's nothing that we can do about our dilemma. There is no way to make right our shortfall with God. And so God himself reveals the only viable solution. A divine and holy righteousness from God through Jesus Christ. How does God do it? He presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now the word that the Apostle Paul uses here, that is translated into our English language, is propitiation. Our more current translations use the word atonement. The word literally means a payment to appease wrath and satisfy judgment. So this is what God has done with Jesus Christ. He presented Jesus as a payment to appease wrath and satisfy judgment. Remember, sin incurs the wrath of God. And so God in love for sinful humanity presented Christ as a satisfactory payment for the penalty of our sin. You've heard me often ask the question, does God forgive us because he loves us? And we are inclined to say, yes, he does. But the fact is, no, he doesn't. He does not forgive us because he loves us. Because he loves us, 
he gave Jesus. And so John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be. The propitiation, the payment to appease wrath. And so God in love presented Christ as a satisfactory payment for the penalty of our sin. What happens is that the wrath of God is turned from us who justly deserve it to Christ. And with the payment now paid by Christ, God can then make right those whose faith is in Christ. Now I want you to understand with me what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter are contending for. What this glorious gospel of grace is really all about. What the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes in us through the work that he has done. So look at it with me. Christ, who is infinitely righteous, died as a substitute for who and what we are. Helpless and hopelessly unrighteous. Because of our recalcitrant sin, our sin that is willful, our sin that is stubborn, our sin that we won't give up. And by virtue of Christ's substitutionary death, God forgives my sin. And he declares my debt paid in full according to the merit of Christ. And thus, by my faith in Christ, God also declares me justified, just as if I had never sinned. He declares me to be right in his sight, having his full and infinite favor, and now possessing the full and infinite merit of my substitute. The responsibility for my sin has been blamed on Christ. And the righteousness of Christ has been attributed to me. And I am justified. And this, my friends, is grace. God made him who had no sin to be sin for me. That I might be made the righteousness of God through the work and through the merit of Jesus Christ. So how do I respond to amazing grace. In part of Paul's rebuke to Peter that we read there in Galatians chapter 2, he said, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now note these words. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. 
I want to give you just three ways in which you can respond to God's amazing grace on your behalf. Three ways that you can live out this week. The fact that Christ lives in you, that he is your merit, that he is your righteousness before God, that he is your life, your future, your destiny, your eternity. Just three ways that you can build a little more substance into the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself as the payment for my sin, satisfying the wrath of God, his merit for my demerit, his righteousness for my unrighteousness, so that I might be brought into a place of full approval by God, just as if I had never sinned. My sins accounted for past, present, and future. My destiny assured in Christ. Number one, every day, remember the cost inflicted on Christ because of your sinfulness. Take time in prayer to remember what Christ paid in order to appease the wrath of God and pay the debt and the penalty of your sin. Number two, everyday worship Really worship. Don't just listen to a song. Don't just say a prayer. But really come into the presence of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to thank you. Worthy is the lamb because with your blood you purchased me and there was nothing that I could do. You took the wrath of God. You took my blame. You died in my place. You shed your blood. Jesus, you are worthy. You have obtained forgiveness and justification for me. Nothing I could ever do. You did it all for me. And then thirdly, and this is critical to what Paul wrote when he said, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Every day, declare that your life is not your own. And that ingratitude you will do anything and you will go anywhere to share God's love and grace with other sinners. Remember that Isaac Watts wrote, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's take the next few moments in worship and lift our hearts to the Lord. And as we listen, let's worship him for what he has done that we could not do. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how much right and good we did, we would still fall short. But he paid the price for us. May your hearts be filled with worship and adoration to him today. <laughs> 